0: In 1979, I happened to be on holiday from Zimbabwe and I went over to Ireland, where my cousins managed to, to find a cottage in Connemara. In fact, it was a, a cottage of one of their cousins. Uh, and we were staying there in early September. And one day we went into the local post office, I just forget the name of the, the village now, about five miles away since I wanted to post a postcard to John Bradburn to the leper camp in Matemwa, Zimbabwe. We arrived at the, at the post office and my, my cousin Patricia, who was a doctor, went in ahead of me and the postmistress inquired as to whether I was Father John Dove and whether we'd actually heard the message on the radio. My cousin said no, we'd heard no message, and w- what was it all about? And the postmistress said, well, he has to ring the Garda in Dublin. any rate, at that moment, a Garda car turned up at the post office, and a nice young policeman said to me that I'd better ring this number in London. It was rather a complicated message, and I phoned, and to my great surprise, I got through from this little post office to London in a matter of... Three minutes, and Tony from Jesuit missions told me that my lifelong friend John Bradburn had been killed at the leper camp in Zimbabwe. Uh, Zimbabwe was then at war. Well, John and I were were both. Of the age in the in World War World War II to be called up, and we both found ourselves out in in India in the Indian Army. In fact, we were both in a Gurkha regiment, but I was a year younger than John, and so I only met him in 1942. And by that time, he was a hero. Uh, it's difficult to describe uh, so many years ago that first meeting, but. Uh, I had a gramophone record and it was light music and I knocked shyly on his door because he had a gramophone and I said I wondered if I could play the record and he took one look at the record and made as though to throw it out the window and put on John Sebastian Bach. And then onwards we became life friends and at once I, I saw that John was a person who was a seeker for things of eternal value, to put it in that way. He loved music, he loved the mountains of India, and he loved the, the, the poor people of India. He had a great concern for them. Sadhus and holy men, all those sort of people attracted him greatly. He had no no notion and no, no value for money. At any rate, we had a while together at the, at the regimental centre, and then our ways parted. Uh, John had to go and join a battalion that was going uh, back into Burma as Chindits, and he had another dose of war, a very heavy dose this time, in Burma, in Broadway, uh, with the Chindits. In 1945, he got his release about a year before I did, and he, he went back to England since he was living in the south of England. His father, in fact, was an Anglican minister at the time, but John was very attracted to monasticism. He loved music, he wanted to sing the praises of God, and he loved solitude. So he found his way to Buckfast Abbey, and an old monk there, Dom Raphael Stones, who's dead, and who had an eye shot out in the first war, invited him to to help him in the cemetery and in the monastery garden and gave him instruction. And John was received into the Catholic Church on the Feast of Christ the King, 1947.
1: No more, my lord, to dream away thy time among the fading blooms on pleasure's lawn. No more to slumber heedless of the chime which keeps untiring watch from dawn till dawn. No more the quest for this world's fairest views, which can but fill the eye with fresh desire. No more the crowding vanities and news that keep from souls thy Holy Spirit's fire. No more the wanderer way, the wide unrest, and weary search for joys that will not cease. No more, good Lord, to turn from thy behest. No more we know thy will to be our peace. To thee we tread the road that Christ has trod, so rest our hearts in his thy heart, dear God.
0: Uh, He was not able to enter, He, he longed to enter Buckfast at that time, but he was not able to enter, because in those days you had to be, I think it was two years in the church before you could enter a religious order. And so he taught for a while at a at a prep school not far away from Buckfast. But at the end of the two years, uh, something happened t- to change the events of of life. He was not accepted at Buckfast, and his godfather, Hugh Simons, recommended he go to sea. And John took this literally, that he should go to sea and sort himself out in mm-hmm. his life and his vocation. And the only way he could go to sea was by getting on to a, a North Sea fishing trawler, from Lowestoft, and he signed on as an assistant stoker on a coal burner. And he wrote a beautiful poem about uh, his uh, sea voyage, but he hated every moment of it. It was terribly hard for him.
1: Moves the great spirit o'er all these wintering waters. Glide, go restfully, birds, or wild winds blow. Wave crests show white upon this darkening ocean. Strongly seas flow. Heaves a lone trawler along these turbulent waters. Watch, watch patiently, gulls and solen geese. Hark for the winches, hauling the night watch nearer. Engine throbs cease. Drawn is the trawl net from out these gathering waters. Wait most warily, gulls and solen geese follow the ship and die for what fish are outflung, then shorewards to peace. Stands a stray landsman amid these wide northern waters watching wearily gulls and solan geese musing of quiet green fields in Devonshire valleys dreaming release.
0: At any rate, it did help him to to sort himself out, and when he came back uh, he made his way to the Carthusians in Parkminster. And he stayed with them for about four months as a... a, a I think he was the doorkeeper, but he was allowed to attend the night office and uh, all the... uh, at any rate, the the sung liturgy, and he spent the rest of the time in solitude. But after four months he uh, once again the spirit moved him and he didn't feel that his calling was for the for the carthusians and he consulted with with the novice master who said well why don't you go to rome john and and pray there at the feet of st peter it so happened that some rich man had given the the monks a free ticket for a pilgrim to go to rome so john went to rome the rest of the pilgrims were so delighted with john that they clubbed together pay half his fare to go to Jerusalem. He longed to go to the Holy City. He got as far as Athens, and his fare ran out, but uh, his passport and papers were not in order, and he couldn't go ashore, and the purser, somewhat reluctantly, agreed that he could get across as far as Cyprus. He got to Cyprus, and he wandered Farmagusta, and eventually a man who was the Third Order of St. Francis took him in and said, I'll get you across t- to Haifa. On an open grain boat and this is exactly what happened. John got to Haifa and he proceeded to to walk from Haifa to Jerusalem. Uh, He was taken in one night by the young Israel who were very anti-British at the time and they thought he was a British spy but they soon released him and and uh, he was able to continue his journey through Nazareth to Jerusalem. Uh, Now John was a uh, he was a, a, a person who was completely open to the Spirit of God, and a, man, a great man for signs. Uh, and when he arrived in Jerusalem, he asked just a passer-by, who was possibly an Arab woman, uh, to direct him to the Benedictines on Mount mm-hmm. Sion. And she misdirected him to a little order uh, called Our Lady of Mount Sion, that was founded specifically for the conversion of the Jews. John had a very soft spot for the Jews because they were an oppressed people and he he loved all oppressed people and he took this as a sign that he should enter this little order and they sent him back to Louvain as a novice and there he was in Louvain for about a year or a year and a half when a a very discerning novice master said ah John you're not for us you're either a pair of who called or a Benedict Joseph Lab, I suggest you go back again to to Rome and pray at the feet of St. Peter. Now this time he walked. He had no ticket, and he walked from Louvain all the way back to Rome. He got the odd lift, but he said he slept many nights in ditches, and he begged some bread and even got some good wine on occasions. But his real uh, aim was to get to Naples to see if a boat wouldn't take him back. Jerusalem he, he was fascinated attracted by the Holy Land and he thought if only I could go there and perhaps even live in a cave in the Holy Land and and praise God in that way but there was no boat at Naples and so he walked all the way across from Naples to Bari in the hopes of finding a boat and there was none and then he began to, to, to again to go back from Bari to Naples and this time up in the uh, Apennine Mountains, he came across a little village church, and the parish priest took him in, and he was allowed to live in the organ loft, and he used the fixed wooden stool as his table, and he slept on the floor, and he wrote me some letters from this little village in Parma. He stayed, I think, a whole year, perhaps a little longer than a year, uh, helping the parish priest in this strange lodging, and he said it was grand to be able to get up in the night, and play the organ in front of the Blessed Sacrament. His father died, and so his mother asked him to come back to pay his last respects, and he went back to Devon, and he tried for a short while to live as a hermit on Dartmoor, but alas, no raven fed him. So then he drifted to, to, uh, to London for a short while, and then he thought, well, I might try my vocation in a Benedictine monastery, and he went for about three months into printage. And then he was firmly convinced that his vocation was not to be a Cenobite. He went back to London, and he got a a job as a sacristan, Westminster Cathedral. He was terribly attracted by the the, the choir at, at Westminster at the time, and he hoped to join it. However, he bumped into Cardinal Godfrey, who was a very simple man. They met in the sacristy, I believe, and it was really the meeting of kindred spirits. And the Cardinal said to John, uh, John, would, would you not like to be a caretaker of my country house, Hare Street House, which was near Cambridge? Uh, you would have all the solitude you, that you would like there, and uh, there are harmoniums and a chapel, and you could look after the Blessed Sacrament. Now, at the at the end of a couple of years or so, they Westminster, that is, decided to use Hare Street House as um, a renewal centre for their for young priests, and so it needed uh, renovation and change, and this meant builders and noise and a certain destruction to some of the lovely Elizabethan panelling and some of the oak doors and John simply couldn't take this, and so he wrote to me in Africa and said, "Is there not a cave in Africa?" My immediate reaction was, well, what one what could one do as a busy, busy missionary?" with a solitary, a hermit, a mystic, um, a person like John. He would obviously be a wonderful asset uh, to back a mission project with his prayer life, but mostly missionaries look for practical people, people who can mend cars or, or or act as a secretary or do your accounts or that sort of thing. At any rate, I approached the Franciscans since he was a, a member of the Third Order of St. Francis, and he came out to Africa in 1900. And 62, and I met him at Salisbury Airport. And then within two days he was way out in the bush at Mount St Mary's Mission uh, Wednesday with Father Pascal Sleven. I think people in Ireland will, will know Pascal because he was deported by the Smith government two or three years ago. Um, and he was there along with uh, Father Buckman's O'Byrne and Father Boniface Gaynor and many people from Merchants Quay uh, they were out there. Well, John stayed a little while at at um, at Wedza, and then he moved over to Ankledorn, a mission with Father Sean Gilday, another great priest who was the at that time the superior of the Irish Franciscans. Um, then he was moved to right out to a, a little mission, Saint Anthony of Padua, at Gandajebuva, uh, again with Father Pascal Slevin and there he began to live as a solitary in a hut on a hill father Pascal loved him uh, but uh, well in a way john couldn't just live there forever and his health was showing signs of of running down a bit since he was trying to live just on sadsa and the local diet
1: mashona folk would pass the time of day from when they meet you till the morrow comes Their manners are unhurried as the sway of nodding maize cobs and of throbbing drums. They sit not huddled over muddled sums, prognosticating useless future care. There, take no thought, sports more than Christendom's. Their homes are huts, not castles in the air.
0: And at that time, um, Lord Acton's house fell empty near to Salisbury, and I approached the Jesuit superior and said, would he not like a caretaker? And he said, well, he would love one. And I said, well, I think John would, would come if he, if he invited him. So John came into uh, the Acton's home at Baby, and he spent a year there uh, as caretaker. And I ran a few uh, little courses there and used to visit him at weekends. The end of 1964, the Jesuit novitiate at Silvara House Um, uh, became empty and um, I was appointed to go there to try and build it up as an adult education centre for leadership and development and I asked John if he would come in and help me because we would be absolutely alone there in the beginning and this suited him fine and he came with me to Silvara well the centre did build up slowly into an institution and by 1968 it was getting a bit big and a lot of people were coming and uh, this was not John's mere or his calling he was a solitary and also he he longed to 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 serve the poor in fact I must mention that he on arrival in Africa he mentioned to uh, one of the Franciscan fathers that he had three wishes in life one was to serve lepers and the second was to die a martyr and the third was to be buried in the habit of st francis he had a terrific admiration for st francis but he used to say to me say to me well uh, no uh, sham imitations i i just admire him and i pray to him so one day he came up to me and he said well, i, I think i must take to the road and solvara is now becoming a big place, and and I don't feel that I can contribute much here. Well, one can't just take to the road in Africa, so I said to John, why don't you go back to Jerusalem and pray at the Wailing Wall? He loved the the King David Wall, and ask God uh, whether you are to serve him in Africa or in a cave in Israel, or he used to speak about a cave in, in India. And he agreed to do this, and it was my leave time, so we more or less left together. But uh, I had to go back to England and Ireland, and he went to first to his mother, and then he went to uh, Jerusalem. And all the signs were that he should come back to Africa. Uh, when he was at the Wailing Wall, he sang the Lamentations of Jeremiah seven times, and the little office of Our Lady in Latin, and he was almost arrested by the temple guards. But uh, another old rabbi was so impressed that he gave him his prayer hat. John came back to Africa, and no sooner had he come back than his prayer was answered. Uh, There was a leper camp at Motoko, and the lepers were terribly neglected at the time, and they needed somebody to look after them. And John discovered this, and at once he volunteered to go. Now, for two years he was in clover there. The lepers loved him. He very soon put a spirit into the camp, uh, a spirit of concern, a spirit of love, and they responded. He managed to get a little a little chapel built, and he was allowed to give them communion. So the day started with communion and John on the harmonium, and the day ended always with with John singing vespers with them and saying the rosary.
1: In that I've always loved to be alone. I've treated human beings much as lepers, For this poetic justice may atone My way with gods whose ways are always helpers. I did not ever dream that I might go And dwell amidst a flock of eighty such, Nor did I scheme towards it ever. No, the prospect looms not to my liking much. Lepers warmly to treat as human beings Is easy to the theorist afar. Near to my heart from bondage be their freeings. May it be flesh, Not stone, O morning star. Miriam, shine, sweet mistress, in thy name salvation wake. Lepers make leap, unlame. Alas,
0: after two or three years, the uh, committee who were looking after the leper camp, I think they were short of funds, but uh, they they tried to to get John to cut down on the rations and what was worse, they they wanted the lepers to have numbers put round their necks and all manner of changes which John simply couldn't take, and there was a, a bust-up, and he was, he was more or less fired as warden of the leper camp. So uh, first of all, he pitched a tent on the local mountain overlooking the leper camp, and the lepers begged him to come down because there was a leopard on that mountain and then some kind farmer gave him a, a tin hut and they erected it just outside of the the, the 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 leper compound but john was still able to go into the to the chapel and he used to meet the lepers in the chapel the sort of things that he used to do was to um he used to bathe the blind he used to go into their huts at night and and sit up with the sick all night and the dying he used to to spend uh, all night, perhaps several nights with them, uh, praying with them, reading from the, the scriptures to them. And then he would dig the grave and he would actually bury them. He had no fear of leprosy. In fact, he wanted inf- to contact leprosy in the in the beginning. And I said, John, for heaven's sake, uh, don't do that, because they will segregate you. They'll put you into a white leprosarium and you won't be able to look after. So he did take a, a, a wee bit of care to wash after he'd been bandaging them, And looking after them, but he was—he became the eyes of the blind and the legs of the lameless and the the hands of those without fingers. And he knew exactly where they kept things in their hut. That Peter kept his little snuff box there, and he'd like a bit put on the back of his hand two or three times a day, and so on. And all those small things and firewood and all all the other things that they needed. He was just uh, there, their their guardian angel, their whatever you like to, to, to call him. And he still continued to do this at night time. The leprosy committee didn't like him going in there in the daytime until the war broke out and and gradually came nearer and nearer to the leper colony and then others couldn't get down and so John uh, was more or less reinstated. Now, he used to come in and visit us at the mission. He was the delight of us all because he... If he come in, he, he wasn't an abstemious person. He would take a, a stiff whiskey and he'd have plenty to eat when he was with us. But when he was at the leper camp, he lived in this miserable hut with no water, no toilet, and on about a quarter of a meal a day, and he had nothing, in the, anything that he had in the way of clothing, he would give away. And he did love his solitude. He loved looking after the lepers, but uh, he loved his solitude. I remember when he was staying at Silvara House, he actually prayed for a swarm of bees to come into his room in order to keep people out, and the bees came. And he had a hive underneath the table, uh, which he typed. He had his typewriter, and he's a great... He, I think he something like 6,000 pages of poetry. Uh, well, a lot of it perhaps isn't poetry, but uh, some of it is, is is very fine poetry. Um at any rate, um, he... Uh, he did more and more for the lepers as the war increased, and he was very, very close to Dr. Louisa Guidotti, who was at a mission ten miles away, called All Souls Mission, and she lived uh, a very hard life. Gorillas came to her at night, and in the daytime security forces, and when she slept, one, one didn't know. She was thrown into into prison by the security forces and tried for having treated a gorilla, but in the end, it was, he was proved to be a, a villager, and she was released, but she never quite knew when she was going to be again put in prison or deported or what was going to happen. And she used to try to visit John about once a week or once a fortnight, just to see how he was and to look after him. In 1979, uh, the war was all around, uh, and there were, were guerrilla bands in, around Motoko in close proximity. And Louisa, in July, she was killed not too far from her mission. I think, to be fair, that it was probably a mistake, but she was actually killed by security forces. They say that she didn't stop properly at a roadblock, and John was terribly upset about this. This was in July 1979, and, and both John and I were privileged to be pallbearers at her funeral. Uh, the end of July, beginning of August, my leave came up, and John came in to, to, to say goodbye to me, and I had a feeling that I mightn't see him again. At any rate, I left f- for home leave, and spent a little while in England, and then crossed over to Ireland, where my cousins are. John went back to Matamwa. Now, towards the end of September, uh, I understand from Coletta, who is the leper sacristan, that John some strange things occurred at the leper camp, because John really loved the peace and solitude of his hut. But about three days before he was abducted, he came up to Coletta to say, uh, Coletta, there's no longer any peace in my hut. There's an evil spirit there. And she went to the hut, and she, uh, an African, noticed some red ants which were a symbol to her of of evil, and John slept in the chapel at night. And then on the morning of Sunday, the 3rd of September, I think I'm writing saying it was the 3rd, uh, he preached a little homily to the lepers, and it was based on the life of, of St. Lawrence, the deacon, who was martyred by the Romans. and. He asked them to pray that he might have the strength and courage to keep faith if and when they came and took him. Then that evening they assembled in the little leper chapel for vespers and and the rosary and Coletta describes it in the way, she says John suddenly developed a, uh, something like a mystical thirst. It was a it was a, a crippling thirst, and they they rushed out of the chapel to try and get him water, and there was none. And then it seemed to ease off, and he locked the chapel, and he went back to his hut. And that was the last that Carletta saw of him. There were two lepers living in the hut opposite him, and they just heard voices in the middle of the night speaking in English, and and the voices, when, first of all, there was a knock on the door conversation. And then uh, the voices died away, and in the morning they found John gone. Now, the first one of the first people to hear about this was Father David Gibbs, who was out at the the mission where Dr Louisa had been. She was dead by then. And David was terribly worried about it, and he did his best to try and find out, get any information. It was almost impossible to get information in those days. But he gathered that John had been abducted, and uh, who by, he didn't quite know. Two days later, on the Wednesday, I think it was, the Wednesday morning, David was coming in from from All Souls Mission, and he was waved down by a a young lad, African lad, who said, don't go any further, a European has been killed. And David said to this boy, "Ah, I think that's my friend, don't worry. And he turned off the dirt road and came onto the tar road. And he said I could see the body about half a mile ahead of me. And when I got there, he said I found John lying on his back, looking very peaceful. Uh, and I managed to—he was still—I uh, was still able to close his eyes and and to pick up the body and and put it into the truck. And I took it into the police in Motoko. At the cathedral. Now, I, I would just remind you that John had these three wishes. One was to to work with lepers, and secondly, was to die a martyr, and the third was to be buried in the habit of St. Francis. At any rate, there was a, apparently there was a, a great deal of of um, shall we say uh, hurried arranging, and people were in great distress, and one thing and another, and I don't think the undertaker had been given any particular in, in instructions about John at all. So that the Requiem Mass was fixed for the following Monday, and uh, a, very, a very great friend of John called Anne, uh, who couldn't attend his Requiem, asked her friend Jill if she would put three little white flowers on John's coffin in honour of his great devotion to the Trinity. Now, Jill, Jill was an Anglican, and she was a bit shy about just going up to the coffin. So she joined the, the back of the queue of those going up to Holy Communion. And when she got to the coffin, uh, she described it as a bit of a, a spiritual whirlwind as she put the three white flowers on his coffin. Now, after that, eyewitnesses saw drops of blood fall from the bottom of the coffin and the most or the greatest number of drops that I can gather from eyewitnesses was three, which would be a symbol of the Trinity and they fell forming a small little pool of blood under the coffin. One of the concelebrating priests noticed this and he put his, uh, well actually he put the little lavabo towel from the altar over the blood spot. In the meantime, the, the undertaker, who, who is, a, is also a good Catholic, uh, saw this with great horror and thought that his assistants had not done a proper clean-up job. And he also thought that 25 years, as he put it, of his business had gone for a burden. So he said as soon as the, the Mass was over, he went over and quickly genuflected and picked up that little cloth and tucked it under the flowers and got the coffin out of the cathedral and into the hearse, and then he 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 had a, an, a radio intercom in his hearse with his uh, funeral parlour, and he more or less sacked his two assistants on the spot. And he went back to the parlour, and he sat with his head in his hands thinking that, gosh, I wonder if that blood is all over the sanctuary carpet and all over the priest's vestments and goodness knows what. And in came a father, Uh, and said to him, I want that coffin opened. And he said, I just said to the the father, well, I'm not going near that coffin, father. You can do what you like. So this father opened the coffin and and examined it, and there was absolutely no sign of blood. In fact, there was even uh, some paper underneath John's body. He'd been dead for a whole week, and there was no sign of blood, and they examined it for any Uh, juice or or from the flowers or anything like that, and they found nothing. So then, a little later, another priest came with um, one of the Blue Sisters, who they have a hospital in Dublin and in Galway. I think the one in Dublin is called uh, Calvary, is it, or I I forget now, but we we know them as the Blue Sisters, the Little Company of Mary, and she came and um, uh, the coffin was opened. And she at once said, Gosh, uh, John shouldn't be in that shirt. Uh, He always prayed to be buried in the the habit of St. Francis. So they phoned up the Franciscan friary, and a habit was sent in, and John was clothed in the habit of St. Francis. The, The coffin was closed, and thereby he got his third wish. And the other thing about John was that he he really longed to die and to go home. Not death, but he longed to go home. He looked upon the kingdom of God as home. He longed to, to join the, the choirs of heaven and to see God. He really did look forward to that. Um, so that his whole life was a sort of reaching out and a longing to see Christ face to face. Um, and this radiated all, all his conversation, his his uh, his whole um, mode of dwelling uh, um, radiated this great desire. I don't think he had a very happy boyhood at school, and he often used to refer to death and uh, uh, as the end of term and going home for the halls. He was that that type of person. So I think that uh, really uh, his simplicity, his uh, his, his openness uh, t- to the Holy Spirit and his great joy uh, is a wonderful lesson to us I- in this uh, rather technological age, I think, where it seems to be that materialism is, is foremost and people rather get lost in the wilderness of concrete jungles. Um, I might add that many people out here in Zimbabwe a pray to John and many say that they've had tremendous help and uh, certainly at this little mission at Silvira uh, uh, we all feel his him around very much if you go into our little chapel here you'll see the harmonium that he used to play and also a statue of, of uh, St. Anthony that was in his hut at Matemo Is there in our chapel you feel his presence and also the, fr- the presence of his great friend Dr. Louisa was also killed they both used to pray a lot in our chapel. So in that sense we, we are greatly privileged here and I'm very happy to be able to, to tell a few other people about, about dear John.
1: Come sweet death we are they fled to fight another day but why, oh why should fight we still when all was fought and won on Friday Hill Come sweet death On Wednesday, if you will, and if you may, Woden's wedding was a thing I have never heard to sing. Will ye now, or will ye not, thrill at life's immortal plot?